welcome back to the 153rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the resuming of student debt payments and how it's probably going to be a real rough time for a certain amount of people. The fact that the U.S. government is not meeting its debt obligation is actually has a larger deficit after the Inflation Reduction Act and our last article talking about understanding the cost of the military and having a transparent process to see everything that we put into it as taxpayers. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, Obviously, there's lots of talk about spending all the time at the government level. And the Republicans have their talking points. They have the things they want to cut. The Democrats have their talking points of the things that they want to cut or change, maybe increase taxes in certain regions. But is there anything that both of them can come together on and agree, hey, we can cut this spending? Maybe there's a 1912 program that we can cut because it no longer serves the people like it should. I want to know, or maybe there's something that you would want to cut that you think would be you know, necessary and actually help us get back on track budget-wise. So give me your opinions down in the comment section. I'd love to hear all of them. With all that said, let's jump to our first article that comes from 538. The headline reads, How Restoring Student Loan Payment Could Change Millions of Lives and the Economy. So, of course, we know that during COVID, during this emergency time, when people were losing their jobs or weren't necessarily getting as much money as they used to, or they had a hard time staying in their current living situation, there was lots of economic strife. So one way that the Trump administration and then the Biden administration tried to relieve some people's pains is pausing student loan repayments. They said, okay, you're not going to have to pay anything. And also during this time, there's a pause on the interest rate. So if you have a $3,000 loan and you can't pay it off this month, not a big deal. And you're also not going to get interest on top of the principal that you cannot pay back or that you will have to pay back in the future. And this helped a lot of people. This made it a lot easier to get through the economic uncertainty, the hard times that were COVID. But it also basically shifted the responsibility to the future. It said, okay, you won't be repaying them now. And the Biden administration tried to come up with a plan altogether to cancel student debt, but it got struck down in the courts multiple times. And now, coming in October, people are going to have to start paying their loans again. Quote, the pause had a major impact. Student loan debt is the second biggest consumer debt category after mortgage mortgages, with the total amount of debt now approaching $1.8 trillion. Not having to make payments kept borrowers in the overall economy afloat in what could have been otherwise a dramatic recession during the COVID-19 pandemic, allowing them to avoid catastrophe of the pandemic, put them out of work, or spend their money in other ways, end quote. And there's a little bit more, and we'll keep going. But what they're talking about is keeping the economy afloat. Imagine you only make $500 each paycheck, and 200 of that has to go to repaying your student loans. Now you only have $300 to spend in the economy, to spend on groceries, to spend on fixing your car, to pay your mortgage. All of these other things where money is supposed to be allocated and should be put into the economy through your 
buying power are now more limited because of the fact that you have to designate a certain amount of that money that you're making to a loan each month. So that's what they're saying with keeping the economy afloat. Now, let's be clear. You can't. I don't think you can make a coherent 100% if we had not suspended student debt, then we would have gone into a recession. But with all the other factors, if we didn't suspend certain rental payments or certain mortgage agreements, then yes, I think the pauses, plural, not the singular pause, definitely help to keep the economy afloat. Now, this argument that the student debt pause alone did that, I think that's a little bit disingenuous, but it really it's not really what they're getting at here. So we'll keep going. Quote, now that respite is about to end, and it's coming at a precarious time for the American economy. It's not all bad news. Forecasters have started to brighten their gloomy predictions about an impending recession, and some borrowers use the pandemic to pay down debt, leaving them in a stronger financial position. The Biden administration has introduced a new program that will discharge the loans of more than 800,000 borrowers who were on income-driven repayment plans and reduce the monthly payments of many who still owe, end quote. So this new program is focused on people who had repayment plans solely dedicated or focused on how much they made. So it's kind of like a graduated plan. If you make $40,000 coming out of college, okay, so they do a little bit of math behind the scenes, they have a rate that they apply to it, you're going to pay $200. If you make $50,000 a year, maybe you'll pay about you know $400. If you make $130K plus, they're probably going to say, okay, you can pay off a lot. We're going to make your payment double that. We're going to make your payment $700 a month or something to that effect. So these sort of graduated repayment plans are probably going to be forgiven or at least a large majority of their balance is going to be forgiven. Now, let's be clear. He'll probably get struck down in the courts again. He'll probably get put on hold just like his last attempt, but he is trying to do something and we'll see how that turns out. What I also want to focus on is the financially prudent people who took this opportunity to pay down some of their debt. When I heard this part of the story, I was very proud of some of the American people, I won't lie, because when you have a 0% interest rate, when you have a payment of, let's go back to that first example, $3,000, and for two and a half years, you are not gaining interest on it, so every single time, every single time that you put a little bit of money towards that debt and you try to reduce it, you're not actually paying the interest for the month plus a little bit out of principal. No, you're taking it directly out of the principal of the loan. So instead of paying the $100 in interest and then the extra $100 that you put in go towards the principal, meaning your interest will be a little bit lower next time, but not all of it is going towards the initial money that you took out. Now people are able to say, okay, no, we're going to directly lower the amount, the principal, and we're not going to have as much interest when we come out of this pandemic. So it's a very financially prudent. And when I heard that, it made me very, very happy that some people were doing this. And of course, we knew that some people were doing this. But a lot of the stories from the right wing were talking about how, oh, well, these, these people, they're just freeloading. They're not even trying to pay off their things when they have this opportunity. And the people on the left were just focused on the benefits of stopping this and how it was helping those people who couldn't necessarily afford to pay it off even with the pause. But now we're having more stories about the people who are being financially prudent, who are thinking forward, who are saying, hey, I was underwater. This, you know, I'm in a secure position now, even during COVID, and this gave me a chance 
to pay off some of that debt. That is extremely respectable, and I absolutely love it because it shows that there is still some financial responsibility and some financial literacy among the populace, which is something we desperately need. Maybe some of these people that were paying off those loans could actually go into the federal government and try to change the way that things operate there. But, you know, I don't see a loan pause or an interest rate pause on any of our debt anytime soon because people still want their money, especially when they borrow from the United States. So let's talk about some of those prudent borrows. There's one in example one example in particular that they give here in the article. Quote, the student loan repayment pause wasn't designed to directly address any of these issues. Instead, it was an emergency measure implemented by the Trump administration to stabilize the economy during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, when unemployment spiked to nearly 15%. But it ended up being a kind of experiment. What happens if borrowers suddenly have more money to spend every month? The government paused payments for four kinds of consumer debt, mortgage, student loan, auto, and credit card debt. To take advantage of the pause, most borrowers had to ask their lenders if they needed it, said Erica Zhang, an economist at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. By contrast, student loan debt forbearance was automatic, and the government took the unusual step of setting the interest rate to zero on these loans so that borrowers' balances wouldn't go up. So... This is exactly what I was just talking about. I'm sorry, we didn't highlight the one gentleman who paid off his loans. He's a 46-year-old who had high loans from when he was in college uh, 26 years ago, more or less. And he has a family now. He was finally able to start paying things off. And it's all because of this policy that they're highlighting right here. Interest rates were zero. This allowed them to pay off the principal. You know, it's not necessarily advantageous to the banks and all these different lenders because they're not making any extra money off of it. And that's why there was a big pushback against these loan pauses because they're saying, hey, whoa, 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 we're a bank and we require, we need that recurring revenue that comes in every single month from the people that we have money out there on. So it, it was kind of a sticky situation. But also, if we're trying to help people in a hard time, that's one of the things you have to weigh. As, as a government who's trying to keep the economy from flipping over and keeping those banks from going under purely because of a recession and trying to spur health for the average consumer, you know, that's one of those risks that you have to think about. And unfortunately, the our system is so manipulated, controlled, and monitored by the Federal Reserve Rather than having the legislator pass legislation that affects things like this, the Federal Reserve can artificially inflate or deflate the currency, whether it decides that it's going to issue more bonds or it's going to print more money. You know, if it issues more bonds, it's actually, because it's a safe asset, it's encouraging money to leave the economy and sit into in a bond payment for 10 or 20 years. Or if it prints more money, it's actually stimulating the economy by putting more excess funds into the consumer's hands so they can spend more money on different things. So the fact that the Fed can just artificially inflate, deflate the currency and they have their hands on all these different levers and they can pull them in order to completely change the situation that America is in, you know, it is sad to see. But in this particular in instance, when both the legislator and the Fed were coming together on this one, it seemed to have helped the people. Whether I agree or not fundamentally with the way that we approach monetary policy, it seems to have been a semi-relief. Now, like I said, it did leave a lot of lenders and a lot of bankers, you know, 
kind of high and dry. Like, no, you're just not going to get your money. So obviously every policy has a upside and a downside. But the upside that they were intending, which is helping the consumer and keeping the economy from completely going overboard and collapsing, it seemed to have worked to some degree. Now, let's be clear. We'll see more repercussions to a lot of these policies as we go forward. We're nowhere close to over with the tail end of the COVID economic problem. But, you know, I'll cautiously say that their program worked. It seemed to have done its job. So that speaking of what's going to happen here in the future, there's a coming pain. And I'm not talking about overall financially because I'm personally I'm not betting against the market right now. I'm kind of just I'm kind of just sitting on the sidelines waiting for things to go down so I can get back in a little bit later. That's not financial advice. That's just how I feel. I'm being overly cautious. It's not like I have a whole bunch of money to throw into the market anyway. So it's not like my purchases are going to make a huge difference. But the coming pain is this October, or at least that's what 538 is trying to argue here. Quote, according to other recent researchers, borrowers who were in distress before the pandemic may be especially vulnerable now. Those with student loan delinquencies during the two years before the pandemic used to pause the increase in credit card debt and auto loan debt, according to a preprint published this May. Distressed borrowers whose loans were paused had 12.3% more credit card debt than those whose loans weren't paused, and auto loans rose 4.6%. When forbearance is lifted, those households may find themselves in more financial trouble than they were before. Meanwhile, according to a Customer Finance Protection Bureau analysis from June, as many as 20% of borrowers have risk factors, like previous student loan delinquencies and new non-student debt delinquencies during the pandemic. That could make them struggle once payments resume. The CFPB also found that 8% of student loan borrowers had already fallen behind on their debts, thanks in part to high interest rates on other kinds of loans. End quote. So what they're saying here is the population that is at risk to default in, is really facing you know, these large, large sums of money or these large amount in loans that they have to pay off. They have lots of other people that they owe money to, basically. And since these people were actually eligible to have their student loans paused, it means that they're more likely to have other forms of debt that are a burden on them. And it makes it hard for them to pay off their debt even after this beautiful pause, as Biden would probably call it, and even probably Trump would say it, that this beautiful pause, after that's over, they're still going to be in trouble. So we'll see how this one bears out. I think a lot of people are dreading what's coming, and they're really hoping Biden's plan will actually allow them to you know, cancel their student loans. But we've seen how this process goes. He talks a big talk. He puts out this big plan, and it's probably going to get challenged, and we'll see if the people actually get the help that they want. Now, you know, I don't necessarily think that everybody deserves just to have their student loans repaid offhand, but I do understand that people are struggling, and it's a serious concern. And it's something that will probably affect the election coming in 2024 because people are going to say, well, if Biden's out of office, if somebody else comes in, they may actually say, you know what, Biden's plan, we're not going to follow through on that. We're, you know, we got to about 220,000 people. And I feel like it's not having the effect it should, so we're going to cancel the program from here on. So a lot of people who are facing hard times and are liking what Biden's doing when it comes to forgiving their debt are probably going to vote his direction. And I think that was definitely part of the calculus when he was putting this plan together. 
All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from Just the News. Federal Reserve falls $416 billion from the time last year despite passage of the IRA. So remember the IRA? It has this beautiful name, Inflation Reduction Act, and it's meant to reduce inflation. And in theory, that means that we would stop printing as much money, we would stop spending as much money to stop putting more money into the economy, and therefore really diluting people's buying power. And the reason we get to this conclusion is if the U.S. government is spending a whole bunch of money on public works projects, and they need a whole bunch of wood, let's say. They need a whole bunch of lumber. Well, uh, the lumber in the area that they are doing this project in, now the federal government comes in with practically unlimited funds. They can pay whatever the local lumber distributor is able to or willing to sell it to them for, meaning that that lumber distributor can raise the prices. The people around the lumber distributor who are normally just working in the community, they're just building houses in a private way, now they're like, oh, shoot, okay, the government's basically their best customer. They're no longer forced to pay attention to what other customers have to pay or can pay for their product or are willing to pay for their product because the government comes in with practically bottomless pockets to pay whatever the cost is for that lumber in order to build their projects. And now the private companies are like, well, wait, we're not going to buy from you anymore. And the lumber supplier says, well, I mean, the government's paying these prices, so why do I need you? So you can see how these sort of inflation happens. And that's, you know, that's a very limited example. The more widespread example is the more money you throw into the economy, the more money you give to the people and you have fixed costs for goods, the more you dilute the people's spending power because companies are going to say, okay, there's more money in the economy and we can actually pay our people a little bit more, so therefore we're going to have to raise the prices on some of our products in order to do that, or the cost of living is going up in certain locations because of all this extra government spending, all of this extra money that's in the economy, so now we have to pay our employees more. If we pay our truckers a little bit more, that means that per bag we're going to have to raise the price 20 cents because we're paying our truckers an extra $20. So, you know, that that's a very limited, small view. I've done plenty, plenty uh, of different episodes on inflation. You can go back and watch those and get a little bit more of an in-depth analysis. But this one is about the fact that the IRA said that it was supposed to reduce inflation. That's what it's named after. And it turns out that we are spending way more because of the IRA and if we were spending without necessarily having a way to get that money back, without raising taxes, without having a few different schemes in place to get people to pay the U.S. government a little bit more, guess what happens? If you're a private company and you are creating a certain amount of goods, you have your fixed and your variable costs that go into it, and then you have your revenue. So in this case, the federal revenue has dropped by... $416 billion. So a lot of people aren't buying your product and you're paying a whole bunch of money to make it. Guess what? You are no longer in the profit zone. You're no longer in the black. You are now in the red. And this is not something that should be acceptable for the federal government. We have to ensure stability, not yo-yoing, where one year we're losing revenue, the next year, oh, we're making so much revenue. We can't have these sort of policies. It needs to be stable. We need to cut back on our spending overall, but we also need to reduce the deficit. It would, we need to be these smart loan payers from the COVID-19 pause who said, 
We have loans out there, and we have to pay them off. Otherwise, the interest is going to become too much. People are going to lose faith that we're going to pay them off, and it's going to be harder for us to get money in the future. Quote, according to a recent release, U.S. Treasury Department data, despite the Democrats' passage of their $780 billion Inflation Reduction Act last year, the legislation, which President Biden signed in August 2022, contained a 15% minimum corporate income tax, which still hasn't fully been implemented by the IRS. Experts at the Community for Responsible Federal Budget and Tax Foundation told Just the News the most of the revenue-raising provisions in the IRA have not taken full effect yet, but they won't likely raise much revenue given the price tag of the energy-related tax credits in the bill. So what they're saying here is, hey, we were supposed to raise some corporate tax rates. We were supposed to raise a few different taxes here or there, some extra taxes on materials, sales tax, things like these different forms of taxes in order to increase the revenue. And they haven't fully been implemented. But even then, even then, when you calculate the amount of tax breaks that we're giving to different people, a.k.a. subsidies in different energy sectors or industries, then we're actually losing money from these different provisions. We're not even able to fully fund through these corporate tax increases, through these other different taxes that are being implemented. We're not even able to fully fund the IRA and all the different projects. So basically, we wrote a check saying, we will spend this much money to aid the economy in order to do blah, blah, blah for the economy. And then they go to our bank and the check bounces because we're not making enough money in order to actually pay off what we say we're going to pay off. But guess what? It's the federal government, so they're just going to keep spending the money without having to worry about the fact that they can't actually make up the money that they are spending. Isn't that just beautiful? It's just beautiful how our system works. We are the U.S. government. Have full faith and credit in us. Give us more money. Allow us to print more. And we will just do as we please. Now, let's be clear. I know I sound pretty libertarian right now. And there are, of course, good reasons to have different subsidies, in my opinion. I think they should be limited, but I, I do understand when having a little bit more of a protectionist policy, especially in something like the chips industry, I understand why the government wants to have a lot of different subsidies because they're trying to foster this industry here in the United States. They're trying to make us less geopolitically reliant on other countries. But also the argument is if those companies get used to those government subsidies, then they may not make the most efficient process. And when those government subsidies dry up, then they will be unable to operate without that extra income. That is always a possibility. So I know both sides, or at least I've listened to both sides of this part of the argument before, and there's definitely something to both of them. All right, so what's the problem with the tax credits? Because I mentioned this really briefly, and I wanted to highlight this before we move on to our next article. Quote, quote when it comes to the IRA, it is true that tax credits look like they will cost way more and some of the revenue provisions may be getting a bit slower start in terms of the regulations. But those issues have little to nothing to do with the drop off in revenue between 2022 and 2023, he added. Scott Hughes, president of the Tax Foundation, told Just the News that some of the tax credits in the IRA, like the Clean Vehicle Credit and Solar Tax Credit, are in effect right now and will cost billions. 
In the quote, in the short term, the IRA is generating little new revenue because of the delays in implementing the 15% minimum tax. So the green energy credits are costing taxpayers billions, he said. And this is something that we need to highlight. It's a lot easier to implement subsidies and to say, hey, we're going, IRS, you're going to have this program. We're going to tell people that you're going to have this program. You are going to take a little bit off of their taxes because they get this credit versus finding a way to fully implement a new tax code on businesses and find all the right ways. Oh, well, okay, if this corporation is this size, then maybe we shouldn't charge them as much. Maybe there will be a little loophole that they could jump through if they're smaller, if they're more family-owned, versus if they're a mega corporation. They have to find a lot more nuance there versus saying, you buy a $20,000 electric car, credit. There you go. Oh, you're investing in solar projects? Now, that one's a little bit more tricky because you have to decide what the size of the solar project constitutes it because if you're making a one-panel solar project in your backyard, that's probably not going to get a tax subsidy versus a corporation that makes a mega farm. But even then, they're a little bit more simpler than creating a more nuanced tax code that will be sweeping across the entire nation and will affect every single corporation in existence, or at least that's how it should go about because they're saying a 15% minimum tax. So then they also have to calculate, well, what are the other tax policies that are already in place and how will they be interconnected with this new tax that they are proposing to make? All right, that's enough on that one. I want to jump to our final article that comes from Common Dreams. The headline reads, 20 groups demand passage of Bowman Amendment to disclose cost of U.S. military footprint. So this is something that, you know, I, I am actually 100%, well, not 100%, I'm in mostly agreement with Common Dreams on. I want to know how much money we spend on the military. We have a rough estimate. But remember when you had Donald Rumsfeld saying that the Pentagon lost some absurd amount of money on TV in an auditing problem, or when they came back and said, oh, well, actually, we undervalue the assets that we sent to Ukraine, so we actually have an extra certain billion dollars of money that we can send to them in aid. These sort of things happen all the time. The amount of money that's moving around shadily in the U.S. government is extremely large. And when it comes to the military, the Pentagon, and moving from contractors and everything like that, it is even more crazy. We need to know, we should have a very firm idea of exactly how much of our taxpayer dollars are going to military spending. Let's be clear. We should have a very strong idea of where all of our taxpayer dollars are going. We should have a very thorough audit. It will probably be almost impossible. It will be a thousand pages. It will be really hard for us to read. But... This is one thing where we need transparency. We need to understand how much money we are spending on different projects without having to file a Freedom for Information Act and spend years waiting for this information to come out. I'm not saying that they don't report things now. I'm just saying that when you have accounting errors that pop up, uh, you know, occasionally in the Pentagon and they say, oh, we have this extra money or we have this money that's unaccounted for. This is unacceptable. This is our taxpayer dollars. Now, let's be clear. It's technically the government's money because they're creating the money in the first place. But that doesn't mean that they can just say, oh, well, you know, we're not going to tell you where your money is going. We're not going to tell you if we're buying or developing a new fighter jet. So let's be clear, I don't expect them to disclose secrets like that, but maybe they can say, okay, this is going to R&D. So 
is it good that we're developing a new fighter jet or should we be spending that R&D money on projects that could possibly have civilian implications like battlefield medical equipment that could be implemented into our healthcare system in the future? Having at least some idea of where this money is going allows us as taxpayers to justify and to say, okay, I'm okay with sending my money to the Pentagon to create new fighter jets. Somebody may be totally in favor of that. They may say it's actually necessary in order to stay on top of the the top of the food chain when it comes to air superiority. There are lots of good arguments there, but if we don't understand where our money's going, the people that want to defend it can't make those arguments. And the people that want to criticize it, they don't even know what to criticize because they don't know where the money's coming from. They don't even know where they can properly cut things. So let me talk about the act really quickly. I will read the summary of what's going on and what it actually is. Quote, for fiscal year 23, NDAA, Bowman introduced the latest update to John Lewis cost of war legislation, an amendment that requires reporting on a wide range of costs to fully encompass the U.S. military footprint abroad that is not covered by the former two pieces of legislation, the later letter details. This includes the price of training, assisting partner forces, maintaining overseas bases, paying contractors who provide goods and services in support of operations in all overseas military operations. Bowman's measure passed the House, but was ultimately left out of the final NDAA. The groups behind the letter to the panel leaders now hope it will remain included in the next one, writing that, quote, this amendment is crucial to taxpayers and other citizens that remain concerned and inadequately informed about the cost of U.S. taxpayers to the wide range of U.S. military activities abroad, including those that fall short of activity, active military missions such as wars or contingency operations, end quote. Now, you know, this obviously doesn't directly apply to what I was saying last time. I think we need a little bit more transparency when it comes to our domestic military operations and spending. But this is trying to highlight the fact that overseas, some things don't get properly reported. Sometimes the costs for things get muddled. Remember when you heard those different articles about the contractors that we pull in that we were paying while we were in the Middle East over the last two decades, and how some of them were charging outrageous amounts of money for food. This is the sort of thing, you know, these contractors that come in, these different groups that we pay on the ground in order to help us refine our bases and fix things like that. Some of these costs are not getting properly audited, and the U.S. taxpayer doesn't have a full account of what's going on over there, and that is not okay. If you want to have military bases all around the world and you want to keep them up and use our taxpayer dollars to do it, you should at least inform us how they're being spent on those bases. That is that simple. It's not, you know, it's kind of the opposite of taxation without representation. Or it's taxation without information. We don't have the information to know whether or not paying these taxes, whether or not advocating for more or less taxes is actually a good thing. The progressives are angry because they want to advocate for more taxes. In order to do that, they have to have the information and know where we're spending in order to fully justify it. And the conservatives... They're angry because they want to cut taxes. And in order to cut taxes, you have to decide what places don't get certain amounts of money. And you have to decide where you're going to trim the fat. And if you can't have a full account of where that money is going and how much is being spent, then you don't know where to properly trim the fat. So this is kind of something that would piss off both sides, in my opinion, for totally different reasons, but it would piss off both sides. We need transparency when it comes to where our tax dollars are going, period, full stop. 
All right, with all that ranting and negative stuff out of the way, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Powder. Professional skier honors his dog with heartwarming video. So, you know, we're getting ever closer to my favorite season, winter. So let's talk about winter. Quote, Dear Powder readers, I'd like to introduce you to a valuable member of our community whom I learned about today, professional skier Josh Dyke's dog, Winter, an apt name for the comparison to a powder skiing aficionado. And yeah, you thought I was talking about Winter the season when I said, let's talk about Winter. No, I was talking about Winter the dog. Quote, here's to Winter getting back on all four paws in the near future and the promise of her namesake season depositing bountiful amounts of snow as summer becomes fall. You need powder to be a powder hound after all, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of winter in this article or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And down there is the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I try to post, you know, different things that like the Twitter tirade that is a little bit less scripted, a little bit less reading from quotes, and just kind of going on a rant about things that I think are interesting. Like yesterday, I talked about why Gen Z is always doing some sort of recreational drug. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.